Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves, and this is episode 49 of the Best Thing Podcast. We have an amazing episode. I talked to Mary Morant. Mary grew up in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia and found her way to earning a law degree from the nation's top ranked law school, Yale. She shares with me a phenomenal story. This one right here is emotional, it's motivational, and most importantly, it is empowering. You are going to love this. Hey, before we get to that, can I just give a shout out to our listeners? Right now, this podcast is doing extremely well. It's growing fast and it is really growing fast internationally. We are hitting the charts in fantastic places like Italy, like Paraguay, like Germany, like Norway, like India, and on and on and on. So I just want to say thank you to the listener for listening tuning in. Make sure if you haven't already, hit subscribe. If you haven't already left a review, do that right now. Share it with a friend as well. Hey, before we get to this episode, guess what? My book, Stop Living on Autopilot, comes out on January 19th, 2021. But you can start reading the introduction in chapter one right now. You do not have to wait. Just go to the show notes, click that button that says start listening right now, And you will get a sneak peek of what I think and what I hope you're going to think as well is something special. Okay, let's get to episode 49 of The Best Thing with Mary Moretz. Welcome to The Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I was connected to by a previous guest on the podcast and a dear friend of mine, Jess Ekstrom. And listen, when Jess recommends someone to me, I listen. Mary Morantz is an author, speaker, and host of the highly ranked and popular podcast, The Mary Morantz Show. Mary grew up in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia and was the first of her immediate family to go to college. And then she went on to earn a law degree from the nation's top-ranked law school, Yale. After ditching a six-figure salary and offers from firms in London and New York, she started a business with her husband, Justin. Together, they have built a successful online education platform for creative entrepreneurs. Mary is also the author of the exceptional book, Dirt Growing Strong Roots and What Makes the Broken Beautiful. Mary Morantz, welcome to The Best Thing. Oh my gosh. With an intro like that, I just feel like I should drop the mic and run away. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a beautiful intro. And I just love your story and especially reading your, your book, Dirt. And I got to tell you one thing I was excited to interview you is because of all the similarities, believe it or not, that you and I have. Yeah, I was I reading know. through the book and I was like, we both come from these blue collar backgrounds where our parents and us, we know what it's all about mm. getting our hands dirty for you, West Virginia, for me, Michigan, both first generation college students to find ourselves on college campuses. We both studied abroad. You found your way to the UK. I found my way to Spain. 
Then lo and behold, somehow for graduate school, we both find ourselves at a Ivy League institutions. And as I was reading your bio, reading your book, I was like, I know her. Like, yeah. I, I, I bet if people saw us walking down the street together, like, how do they know each other? So I'm curious for you, have there been times when you start talking to someone after a speaking engagement or a coaching session when all of a sudden it's like, you know, sometimes growing up, we'd say something, the saying of game recognizes game. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, I know you because of that past experience. How much have you connected with people that you immediately get because of maybe similar experiences? Yeah, you know, it, it's this exactly what you said. Because when I was reading your book, I was like, "Oh, we we know each other. We we are we 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 have that thread, you know." And I feel like people who maybe fall into that category of first in your family to go to college, or first in your family to have a healthy marriage, or first in your family to get right with your finances. There is just there. It's like you are in a club of people who get it in a way that. No one who had it come, you know, super easy. Like there are different stories, different paths. But if you if you are a generational chain breaker, you get it in a way that's different than most people. And the, you know, I had spoken at a lot of conferences. We had taught about business. We had taught about booking more clients, reaching the high end. And those talks were always, you know, helpful. And people would say, thanks so much. The first time I stood on stage and was willing to reveal, I am the girl in the trailer. After that talk was over, we, we were speaking at one of the big conferences in the photography world. And there was a line out of this huge ballroom and down the hallway that took three hours to get through of people just coming up to say, I was the girl in the trailer. I thought I was the only one. Because you know, in that particular way, being from a trailer was the thing that I felt like I couldn't talk about, that they felt like they couldn't talk about. And we all have parts of our story that we feel like if people knew this about us, they would they would do that thing with their face where they look sympathetic on our behalf and it makes us feel shame. And, you know, when I was reading your book, Antonio, and you were talking about, you know, some of the, all the different moves that you went through in the shelter for domestic violence and, and just things that happened in your past. And I know how hard that is to put out in your story, especially if you're an achiever, because we do not like to feel weak. We do not like to start sentences with, you know, I struggled with, and it takes a lot of courage to stand up and say, this is the muddy part of my story, but I'm sharing it with you because you don't know me until you know that part. Let's talk about that muddy part of the story, because I'm curious, as I was writing my book, the early drafts, they didn't look much like the final version that the public is going to see. So as I was reading your book, where, frankly, you, you put everything out there. I mean, you share things about your father, about your relationship with your mother, grandmother, so much. Things that, again, that are vulnerable. Uh, I'm curious, did the early drafts, did you did you go there or did you have, was it your husband or a friend that said, come on, girl, you better, you better peel back some layers and keep it real? You know what's interesting is that my first draft of the book and my second draft were very different, but they were for different reasons. Draft one of my book of Dirt was a much angrier, more bitter version. This was the first time I was ever getting this out on paper. And, and I don't know if you're like this or not with your story, Antonio, but for a long time in my life, I was like, when you are in the midst of those hard things, you go, you know, I'm going to put that over here in this compartment, in this box. I'm going to put the lid on it and I'll deal with that later and later never comes. And so when you finally take that lid off and you start putting that down on paper, it sort of all comes out, pouring out, you know, it's like Pandora's box. And I like to say now in hindsight, draft one was for me. Draft one was sort of the metaphorical cleaning out of the wound. You have to get all of that infection out before you can start the healing. 
And so they were very different, but it was more for the, um, the, the thing that was lacking in draft one was grace. It was empathy. It was wisdom. It was understanding how hard being an adult really is. And there's this softening, I think, that comes with age where you can start to find forgiveness because you have realized how many times you've come up short too. And it's hard to be a grown up. And you remember how old you were in comparison to how old your parents were at the same time they were trying to raise you. And that puts it in a whole different light for sure. That puts it in a whole different light. You mentioned just now anger and bitterness. Is this something that was still, and I always like to talk about apps being open, running in the background. Like um, sometimes there can be a house on the street, you look at it and it looks like every light is off. But if you go inside the house, go down to the basement, there's a light on. You just can't see it taking mm-hmm. up energy, taking up space, et cetera. Same thing on our computer. Too many apps open. What causes the processor to slow down and eventually can lead to a crash. That first draft, that anger and bitterness you talked about, was that a quote unquote app that was open running in the background that you were unaware of? Or did you know that it was there? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm going to say it's like Photoshop. <laughs> like it's there. You might access it for a while but you have no idea how much space it's taken up and how many, (laughs) uh, you know, out of date versions you're running, I guess. Uh, Yeah. I think like, I think that's exactly what you're describing. What's so powerful, especially putting it in terms of like computers and how much memory space it's taking, how much it's slowing us down is the second that got released, the second that freedom started to really take hold in getting it out the first time and then moving into what the second draft became. And honestly, like, you know, I can't tell this story without talking about God and my faith. Like to me, God is the second draft and God is what happens when grace really is allowed to take root and, and he's allowed to kind of have his fingerprints on the story. And, and once that process started to settle in, I had no idea how captive I had been to anger and resentment. And like you talk about in your book, having other people be responsible for the directions my life took, you know, instead of saying, yeah, this is how I grew up, but I own my life as an adult. So I think like it was sort of like where you're running, you're running, you get used to your computer going really slow and then you clear off the cache. I don't know. I'm, I'm really not going to do well with all the computer analogies, but as soon as you free it up and you speed it up, you realize just how much that was dragging you down. So I, I love all of that um, because it is a new, very new. I've never heard that description before, but such an accurate way to capture how much of our mind, how much of our mental space we give to these things without even realizing it. It just becomes the numb we walk through every day. Yeah. Right now that makes me think a little bit. I'm curious in your book, you talk about when you find yourself at at law school at Yale, which is a little bit different from where you grew up in West Virginia. I'm sure quite different from the beautiful campus, uh, West Virginia University. Mm. Uh, you talk about a moment when you're, you're put together with your cohort or your, your pod and everyone's telling a little bit about themselves. And these people are talking about internships and all these experiences in different places across the globe. And then you share a little bit about your background, eating tomatoes like apples, uh, different experiences, et cetera. I'm curious, have you found that your background and of course, you got your education, you find yourself to find your way to Yale, et cetera. Has your background allowed you to pretty much connect with anyone? My hunch is you can walk into a room and probably not know anyone, but within 15 minutes, you've, you've started a variety of conversations. Uh, you mentioned empathy earlier. Uh, does mm-hmm. your background allow you to connect with others a lot easier than you think it is for other people to do so? Uh, yes, is the short answer. But the qualifier I would give is that it's both of those parts. It's the growing up in West Virginia and it's the Yale. Uh, You know, Justin and I, my husband, we had a 
wedding photography business based in Connecticut, a high-end wedding photography business based in Connecticut for 15 years. We were based in Connecticut, but we would travel all over the world. And there were so many times when we were sitting down with a couple who initially was maybe feeling a little awkward with us because of their own Ivy League education or because of how successful they were, or how much you know income they had or what have you. Um, that I saw them instantly be put at ease or, or, you know, connect with us more because of that specific background. And then there are, you know, plenty of times when we were at a conference or a workshop and somebody exactly like our stories, they were the first in their family to do anything in terms of leaving their small town or go to college or start a business and that been there, done that empathy kicks in. And so I think, you know, you talk about in your book, owning our story and there's the parts of owning the muddy parts. And then there's also probably equally uncomfortable, truly owning the successful parts where we don't feel guilt about that or this prolonged lack of belonging, or we really, you know, it was a mistake. They made a mistake and we snuck in the back door. We really were meant to be there. So it's it's hard to own the muddy. We all know that, but it's also hard to own the wins as well. I don't know if you've experienced that. Oh my goodness. Yes. That is a challenge sometimes, a success. And that's a whole other story uh, that we can talk about. But yeah, I understand the, the guilt that I've felt for, quote unquote, finding my way out, finding, quote unquote, success, et cetera. Um, you, you mentioned having both sides, right? The, the Ivy League education and those experiences. Then you also mentioned, of course, the growing up in West Virginia and the trailer, et cetera. There's something in your book that that made me smile a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about what reality check math is. Cause I, I was reading that and I, I, I'm not, I'm going to do, I'm not going to do my listeners a disservice and explain it. But I, when you're talking about balancing the two, could you talk about quote unquote reality check math? Yeah. So reality check math is kind of that, you know, beautiful mind calculus formula we have to do in our minds when we grow up without a lot and we are trying to break into the next level. And and specifically, I was talking about applying to law school and how at the time, and I truly honestly to this moment cannot remember if like application fee waivers didn't exist then or if I just didn't know about them. But for every law school I was applying to, essentially it was another $75 to just have the privilege of hopefully being turned down or not hopefully, but probably being turned down by them. And that was $75 each time I did not have. And so, you know, that reality check math is a problem that rich kids don't necessarily ever have where you are making bets on your future, where you're going to allocate those $75 one at a time based on where you think you actually have a chance of getting in. So you're, you're reaching, but like you need to also play it smart because there are only so many applications you can send. And I compare it to night math. If you've ever had that where you're, you have insomnia and you have to get up at 6 a.m. for a flight or a presentation and you start doing that math of if I fell asleep right now, (laughs) I would have four hours and 15 minutes of sleep. And the more you do that math, the more stressed out you get. And I say the two are similar because they are both an exercise in scarcity and stress. That the more you focus on that lack, the more you limit your options by a lack of resources, the more you're operating out of stress, the more you're operating out of scarcity, and the the more it feels like those opportunities close off. And so my story is that I actually had a friend who sent in my application to Yale and paid the $75 because I had already done the calculus and determined that the numbers didn't add up. And I had already taken myself out of that equation to continue to beat that metaphor to death. And so it was somebody else stepping in and saying, let's operate out of a different currency, a currency of hope and where we're headed. And like you talk about that are the best thing to happen to us is not already behind us. Yeah. How beautiful are those people that step in uh, to believe when we can't 
believe that that tap you on the forehead. I think you got tapped on the forehead and (laughs) saying, no, you're going to apply to Yale. What a beautiful thing. Uh, Before we get to the question of the best thing, you know, another thing I want to talk about, something that made me smile in in the book is you talking about uh, the J. Crew sweater. Hmm. The J. Crew sweater, because it made me now just tell a brief story. Uh, I remember when I was a kid that the men that I thought were the most successful, they had it figured out with the dudes that I saw walking around khaki pants, white buttoned up shirts, blue blazers and loafers with a tassel on. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I was like uh, with a tassel. On. And I was like, that that's success. They probably live in a different side of town than I do. They probably have a home. They probably mom and dad are married. They go on vacations. I'm like, that's success. And I can still remember when I had my first internship in Detroit, buying that and putting that on and looking in the mirror, Mary, and realizing how out of place. It just did not feel right. I, I thought mm-hmm. this was going to be success and I thought I would feel right. And you talk a little bit in the book about the J. Crew sweater. Could you tell uh, our listeners about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me ask you, have you ever seen that thing that goes around on Facebook that's like, post the thing when you were growing up that you thought meant that family was rich? And so some people are like the ice maker in the refrigerator or like, the in-ground pool versus the above-ground pool or what have you. And so I feel like all of us, especially if we did grow up in those small towns or those families where we were trying to be the first of something, we can look around and we can start to see things we think create the good life. And that, for me, honestly, even before I got to Yale, started with the TV shows that were on at the time. So for me, that was you know Full House and Who's the Boss. And when I look at the life that I lead now, I live in Connecticut I have golden retrievers. There's a lot from those shows that are still informing, you know, this is what it is to to, to make it. And um, when I got to Yale, one of the things I noticed was that regardless of what they were studying or where they came from or anything like that, one of the commonalities I saw walking around in this very visual representation of you belong here was this gray cardigan. It was this like deep gray cable net cardigan. And Yale has on campus, like right down the street, a J Crew, and um, I had never been in a J Crew before. Once when I was in college at WVU, this traveling factory sale of J Crew with like sweaters with like the labels marked out came through town, which looking back, I don't think was actually, uh, you know, a real J Crew thing, um, and or or at least like they didn't come by them honestly, probably. Um, but so I walked into that store, and it was this instant feeling of these things we start to perform in order to belong. And and one of them for me at the time was paying full price. Mm-hmm. I wanted the sweater because it's what everybody had. And I wanted to buy it not on sale. If it had been on sale, I wouldn't have turned it down. But I was really pleased with myself that I was actually investing in myself by paying full price. And it's like the perfect epitome of rich dad, poor dad, and like the appearing wealthy versus the actually building wealth. And You know, when I put it on, I expected to feel different, but I was still just me, but me in a gray sweater. And I talk about it being wool and itchy on your skin because you're trying to put on these things. The color I never looked good in, a wool that was scratching on my skin, and I was still scratching and clawing, uh, trying to become this new thing. Um, And it reminds me of another part in Dirt where I talk about the caterpillar becoming a butterfly and how transformation hurts. And there's the saying of just when the caterpillar thought her life was ending, she became a butterfly. And that's supposed to be inspirational. But when I hear that, all I can think is, I bet it hurts the caterpillar. 
And I kind of like conjure up scenes of these wings scratching and clawing at your skin, feathers protruding through raw, broken skin, this literal stabbing of your own back just to fulfill your own propensity to fly. And then I found out that that's not how caterpillars become butterflies at all. They actually don't grow wings out of their back. They actually disintegrate entirely. If you opened up a cocoon or a chrysalis, caterpillar soup is all you would find. And they actually become covered by this shroud in this tomb of a chrysalis. And it is this death to self before a new thing, a hope, uh, takes flight. And it's this new thing, but this time with wings. And so I kind of feel like that was that process is you can try to put on other things. You can try to put on different colors, try to be a different person, a different butterfly or what have you. Um, But when we are becoming a new thing, the first part of that process is a breaking down of everything we thought we had to be in order to become something new. Oh, that's beautiful. It's just a reminder uh, for me and hopefully for everyone else listening that transformation can be messy. We think that we make these big, bold faith statements. I'm making new decisions. I'm I'm, I'm doing things differently. Well, get ready for some mess. Get ready to be challenged. It's not going to be easy. Um, But also what a beautiful illustration you just described of wearing that sweater and it being itchy and not feeling good. And a lot of people in their lives, you know, right now, what is quote unquote feeling itchy in your life? What doesn't feel right? And that's a tap on your shoulder asking you to do something. It's your choice whether you choose to do something or not. Uh, by the way, as I read your book, the only what kept coming to my mind was if it hasn't already, when is this bad boy going to be optioned? Like, so it can become a mini series or a television show. Uh, I'm not sure if you're actively pursuing that, but that's just, that, that's just what was on my mind. Cause it reads like that. It's, it's amazing. We'll, we'll say it, the door is open. <laughs> the, the door is open. Beautiful. Okay. So let's transition to this question of the best thing. You know, when we talk about the best thing, we always talk about good, best things, getting married, having kids, buying a home, graduating from college, et cetera. But I'm curious for you, what's one of those best things that maybe wouldn't necessarily appear on a resume or bio or or come up in in casual conversation Mm -hmm. that has had a profound effect on who you are today? You know, I feel like there, there are a few different examples of this that I could give. And the overarching the overarching theme and the overarching answer that comes out of them are those things that I wanted to hide away because they felt muddy and broken and and messy that actually, you know, in in my, like I said, my faith is very important to me that I think God has a really funny sense of humor and he likes to use them not just to redeem your story, but to do it in a way that's really hilarious. So I'll give you a quick example of that. I grew up in a trailer where it rained just as hard inside as it did out. The roof was completely caving in. The water poured through the floor, which meant the particle board disintegrated. You had to know where to hopscotch so you didn't fall through the floor. In the summer, that rain would dry and turn to mildew. And and the thick smell of mildew, the sickly sweet smell filled the air. It clung to your clothes and your very dignity. And you'd go to school and get made fun of a little bit because you smelled like mildew. Fast forward in my life, 20 years, and we walk in, we're looking for houses. My new husband and I, Justin, we looked at a bunch of houses, put a bunch of offers in. We walk into what would become our sixth offer, the the sixth, the sixth house we put an offer on. And what had happened is that it had been in foreclosure and then a pipe burst on the th- third floor. It ran through the house. It dried. It stayed in foreclosure for the summer and it got mildew. And so I walk into a home that's basically not habitable because it needs to be cleared of mold and mildew. Um, but it, it smelled like home wow. when I walked in. And so we buy this house and 10 years later, we have this beautiful colonial house that's by the water in Connecticut, which who gets that for their first house? And I just think it's incredible that God opened the door to one of the most beautiful things in our lives 
but he was always going to remind me a wink and a nod to one of the hardest things in my life. And like, I needed to trust that that part of the story I hated, I was looking at this first, the first words on the page and thinking it was my whole life sentence. He was not only going to redeem that, he was going to have a lot of fun reminding me of where we came from. So, you know, the trailer opened the door to me getting into Yale. It's given me all the things like you talk about in your book, the coaching terms of grit and tenacity and resilience. Um, but it's also just given me this appreciation for the life I have. Now I talk about in dirt, it's divided into two parts, the girl in the trailer, the girl after. And I feel like the girl in the trailer is with me right now in this kitchen. And she is dancing around this kitchen Island, just totally freaking out that this is the life that we have. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, you said beautifully that God opened the door. And I'm a firm believer that God 100% opens doors and God likes to see us uh, helping to push the door as well. Uh, Not just waiting for it to be open, but taking active steps to create our own momentum, if we will. And as I think about your story and the doors that have been opened for you in your life, one thing we mentioned in the introduction, Mary, that stands out is you get this prestigious uh, law degree from the best law school in the country, you get those six-figure offers from firms in New York, London, I believe, also in London, I believe, yet you choose to say no. Because you talk about that. You talk about God opening doors. I mean, because you you chose to do that, I'm sure God opened doors for you. How did you have the confidence, the wherewithal to say, while all my fellow classmates are going this direction, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go another way, especially with your background, because a lot of people may assume like, oh, you made it, girl. No, don't take that for take that job at the firm, get that annual bonus, etc. So how did you just have the the courage, the boldness to go a different way? Mm, well, the first thing that I will say is that, you know, um, you come from a small town, you end up with something like Yale Law, 99.999% of people are going to be so happy for you and so supportive. But when I did decide to not take the law firm offers and to start our own business, I do remember one particular lady, a friend of a mom saying to me, all that schooling. And I think she like really enjoyed what felt like this momentary fall, you know, Um, this like, oh my gosh, she lost her mind. Like she was sets, you know, and instead she's going to go be a wedding photographer, whatever that is. And I think the, you know, that's one of those, like, it's very cliche to say leap in the net will appear. But when I think about that feeling and you talk about this in your book, what were you feeling at those times that were some of the best things? Mm. And, you know, did it make you feel alive? And for me, when I looked at the future I was creating and did it make me happy or break my heart? Um, I knew that I was choosing between a hundred hours at a law firm, never seeing what was my fiance at the time about to be my husband or the two of us building something together where we got to spend our lives bearing witness to one another. And we chose unordinary. We chose this path less traveled and to build something together. And like I say in dirt, it's for me, what I've learned from that is that it is far less important where you end up and far more important how you got there. And if anybody is sitting there thinking, what's next for me? You know, what, where do I go from here? This is, it looks like success to the world, but I'm just feeling this tug. I think that's the the question to ask yourself is where are we headed? Like you talk about, does it break your heart or does it set you on fire? And Will the story you tell of how you got there be far more interesting than how you look on paper, like you talk about? Yeah. Yeah. You talk about 
in your work, um, how you really connect to the person who's the quote unquote most put together person in the room. Mm. I got that right. Correct. The most put together person in the room. And you just touched on that right now. There is someone that's listening that has been following a, a really good path. Mm-hmm. The path that society told them to follow, uh, the path that mom and dad are so proud of them of following, et cetera. They're doing what's expected of them. Uh, mm-hmm. You were at a, fa- a phase in your life when early 20s still, uh, when you chose to ma- make that first kind of faith statement and, and go a different direction. Uh, I think, as you know, as we get older, and I'll speak for myself, as you accumulate things, you accumulate mortgages and uh, <laughs> cars and different, your garage ends up f- full of stuff. Like, what is all this stuff? Who owns this? Things get a little bit more challenging, uh, I think, mm-hmm. sometimes to, to make those moves. What do you say to that person who maybe isn't in their early 20s any, anymore, isn't fresh out of school, but knows that what they're doing isn't it, and they mm-hmm. want to maybe start to slowly pivot to explore something new? Yeah, well, uh, a really powerful quote that sticks with me a lot, and as we've told this story of, you know, working the way up to Yale Law and how that happened and then totally pivoting from that to start the business. And then I've totally pivoted again in the last year to now become a full-time author, leaving a 15-year wildly successful photography business. Um, Each of those times, I do think that there is something to be said of making those leaps. You're able to leap a lot easier or further when you're, when there's muscle memory. And a, a really powerful quote I heard was, God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. And when we start to look backwards mm-hmm. on the story that we're owning, all these twists and turns and the broken parts that got us exactly where we are, and we see that even in the times when we didn't understand what was happening, we didn't understand how this part of our life connected to this part, you know, why is this, is this a destination or a bridge like you talk about? When we look back at those breadcrumbs, and we see how they all led to this moment, we see that there was a plan and we see that none of it was wasted and the experiences get to come with us. And so I think that that muscle memory of seeing that past faithfulness, it allows us to be uh, a lot braver when we lean into that present trust. And I would just say that, um, you know, if if it's something that that whole cliche thing, but if you can't go a day without thinking about it, um, you know, I, I just, I, I feel like there's just, too much at stake to live a life where you're sleepwalking through it and you have come this far. The, you know, some, so many times we're looking ahead at the mountains that are in front of us. I'm totally stealing this quote from mom TV, by the way, it's the show mom, which is amazing. If you haven't watched it mm. so many times we look ahead at the mountains in front of us and we forget to look back at the mountains we've already overcome. So we've already climbed mm. and those mountains were just as hard, if not harder to climb because we didn't have that muscle memory yet. And so you've made it this far. You have, what you need inside you to keep going, to keep climbing. So I would say go for it in short, (laughs) go for it. I love that idea of muscle memory. And also what I'm hearing you say um, as you talk is we have to have that willingness, A, to have faith, that willingness to to truly surrender. But without directly saying, and I'm also hearing you say, we have to believe in something bigger than ourselves. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. When I think about um, everything all of the best things, Antonio, that have happened in my life, they were not from my own hands. Like you said, you have to push the door, you have to show up, you have to keep putting, you know, making the steps. But there is no way I could have forced my application to get picked at Yale. There's no way I could have forced this three-day trial at Match.com to turn into my husband of now 13 years and everything that that's turned into. There's no way I could have forced this house being our home for the last 10 years. 
And so we have to show up and we have to, you know, put our, put everything we have into it, but we also have to trust that there is this gap between what we can do and what God can do. And I think one of my other favorite quotes is like, work like it depends on you, but pray like it depends on God. And Put 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 all of your work and your effort into it, but do not put an ounce of your faith in your own efforts, right? There's more that's driving you forward. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So for those folks, of course, I'm going to have all the fun links and everything in our show notes. But if there's a few places you'd like to send folks to learn more about you and your work, that this the starter pack, if you will, where would you like us to send them? Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest place, the central hub for the book, and you can also find all the central hub for the podcast that I do and, and me is thebookdirt.com. So T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. It is a book called Dirt, which is super weird, but um, you'll it'll make sense when you read it when we dig into uh, what God has planned for us. And then I'm at Mary Morantz, M-A-R-A-N-T-Z on all the socials. Beautiful. Well, this book is phenomenal. I think you're quite phenomenal. And I, I can't wait to turn on my TV one day and, and see this bad boy on my television screen as well. Mary, thank you so much for joining me on The Best Thing. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 